as Paul and Sosthenes were sitting to write this letter to the Corinthians, there were several things they understood needed to be said to the church. Among those was a strong message of harmony and unity and a reminder of exactly whose they were and what they were called to do. So as we engage this first part of chapter 1, this opening, we come back time and time again, uh, really to verses 1 through 11, because they, they encapsulate that message that is so relevant for us today, that's so easy for us to forget, uh, and really, really just marginalize. So what we want to do is keep going back to that and pull out the things that we need to hear that Paul and Sosthenes are teaching or are seeking to teach the church there in Corinth. Today we're going to be talking primarily about no divisions among you. I want to read verses 9 uh, through 17 again to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, by the way, who's brought Bibles? Have you started to do them? Yay, I'm really, really proud of you guys. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Nothing wrong with digital Bibles, but there's something about having the physical one in here to go back and forth and make notes and keep returning to that's so important. We're going to read verses 9 through 17, and then we're going to talk a bit about uh, having no divisions among you and that, what that really means here um, for us today as it did for them. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this, one of you claims I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can say you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied of its effect. It has been reported to me by members of Chloe's household that there are rivals among you. How can there be rivalry among you if, if we know that God is faithful and you were called into Him into fellowship? Where is there place for rivalry amidst fellowship? Where is there place for division when the calling is so high? Where is there cause for division when the calling is singular? That your body, this, this body of Christ, as it says in verse 5, you are richly enriched in Him in every way, in all speech and knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ, that is to say the gospel of Christ, is confirmed among you. How is the gospel confirmed if what people see of the church is division and a lack of harmony? If unity is missing, where is the harmony of the gospel amongst his people? What Paul was trying to get across to them is made clear by the fact that he does this. He uses these transitional words, these prepositions like now therefore, so, yet, for. Whenever you hear that, you can kind of put in the English phrase with that in mind, because that's the preposition. Let me show you what it sounds like. If we're looking at verse 10, go from verse 9 into 10, it goes like this. God is faithful, you were called. 
With that in mind, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement in what you say and what you do, how you act. So, therefore, as we jump forward to uh, verse 11, it says, With that in mind, it's been reported to me about you, brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. You were called. God is faithful. You have a job, richly equipped people. There's no room for disharmony in the body of Jesus. So two things we really want to engage this morning as we approach um, this particular passage of Scripture, okay? Uh, The first thing is, He has called us, God's people, us, those of us who took communion today, along with the billions of other Christians of history past who are one in the body of Jesus. He has called us to a spiritual mission to put the corrupted culture back in order. By the way, verse 5, verse 6 being reminders, he's richly equipped you with every blessing and gift to do exactly that. And then secondly, divisions evolve into competition and mutual marginalization. And what I mean by mutual marginalization is that when the richly equipped body of Jesus Christ is divided, it is diluted. It is made less strong, less powerful, and thereby less impactful. So let's start to look through this. Uh, The first part of it, he has called us to a spiritual mission to put a corrupted culture back in order. The Corinthian church uh, community itself had allowed the norms of secular Corinth to influence, hear me say corrupt, uh, infect the way that they were thinking. What happens in Corinth is the same thing that happens here in the United States or or in Brazil or in China or in India, you name the place. Whenever the church of Jesus Christ allows the culture around it to become preeminent to the culture of the gospel, it will contaminate that church's thinking. Now, let's put our thinking hats on. This is an opportunity for interaction. You can talk. I want to hear your thoughts. What are ways that the American culture okay, has affected the church of Jesus Christ? Or, or a better say, what elements of culture are affecting or infecting the, cu- the culture of the church of Jesus today? What are some things that come to mind? <laughs> she said, we don't have enough time for that. How about a summary? What's one or two away? Politics, allowing the division of personal politics to affect uh, the harmony of Jesus. Okay, what's another way? Social media, okay. The, the narcissism that is social media to, to divide people. What else? Cell phones in church to go off and interrupt. It's my mom, by the way. Isn't that great? This is all those times that I misbehaved as a kid. This is like that moment I was always hoping for. Like, you just wait till we get home. <laughs> Your father is so disappointed in you. <laughs> what are some other ways, by the way, I'm just kidding, it happens. What are some other ways that culture has infected or affected the church? Is that Randall, is that your hand back there? Evil's become good, good's become evil, I would agree with that. Lifestyle acceptance, particularly perhaps uh, financial mismanagement or the worship of things and goods and commercial consumerism. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I'm not throwing stones up here, okay? You know, Amazon is as bad for me as it is for others, I guess. But, but what are other ways? Other ways, culture. Yes, ma'am. Ooh, that's good. Uh, Nikki says relativism. Excellent. Absolute truth. And what's true for me? 
different forms of sexuality, LGBTQIA, it gets bigger and longer every day. They're going to come up with a phrase for that pretty soon. I heard quilt bag the other day being the new acronym. We'll, We'll see what works. There's all kinds of ways that culture can infect and affect the church. If we're not vigilant and paying attention, listen, if we're not being good students, that will happen, just like it happened in Corinth. Now, Paul's going to talk specifically about that in a few minutes as we engage Corinth. But what I want to do today is talk uh, maybe, mm, maybe a little bit more focused about the ministry that we have in our own communities today. And that's the scripture that, that Penny read at the very beginning, talking about the ministry of reconciliation that we are called to that ministry to be reconcilers in our culture. Now, if you were here for the Peacemaker series, would you raise your hand? If you were here for Peacemaker, and we went through that, we took, I think, five weeks in Peacemaker, here's a quiz. And it quizzes me to see if I did my job or not. Each week, we finished with a phrase uh, at that. It said, go and be pastor fail. Awesome. There's my F. Go and be reconciled. And that kind of, now you're all nodding. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So if, if it's a law, I know, three months ago, what? You know. So if we're going to go be reconciled, what that means is we're going to put things back in order. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 20, that's really that theme. Go and be reconciled. So the reconciliation ministry is putting things back the way God wanted them to be. Say it one more time. The ministry of reconciliation is putting things back the way God wanted them to be. Jesus did a lot of teaching about this in his parables, and the term he used was the kingdom of heaven. And he would say the kingdom of heaven is like. And so that's really what we're talking about is this reconciling ministry. So if now, brothers and sisters, I urge you uh, to agree, that there be no divisions among you, that you have the same understanding and the same convictions, you say the same things, there be no divisions. If that's the calling, then the reconciliation reconciliation that we do needs to be intentional. Would you agree? So what I want to challenge you with is, is, uh, is maybe three ways that we understand how we have a redemptive effect in our culture. Now, redeeming and restoration are something that are very popular in our culture today. Let me illustrate. How many of you like shows like um, um, the, where they flip the houses? You know, they get the junk house and they restore it and they make it beautiful again, right? Um, this is a picture from a few years back. They, they bought this dilapidated but beautiful farmhouse up in Appalachia and they poured just, an, just a huge huge amount of love and effort and energy and, and work into it. And by the time they were done, it was back to its old glory. It was gorgeous and therefore restored. Same thing happens with, with pictures. People can take now today pictures that have been damaged over time with stains and wear and fading and watermarks and folds, and, and they can restore that picture back to its original glory, and you can see it the way it was intended to be. One more time. You can see it the way it was intended to be. If the church has a reconciling effort in our culture, what will happen is that people will see the church of Jesus Christ and see the way things were supposed to be. And the way Jesus said it was this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So in that 1 Corinthians passage, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 20, that ministry of reconciliation starts to look like this. We have a way that 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 godliness is exhibited in our culture. And I want to propose three ways. First of all, is that we think about this image of God as a verb. 
Now, most of us, when we hear the image of God, we think of that in noun form, right? We think, well, we're made as people in the image of God. Therefore, we have like a physical characteristic that specifically relates back to God. Or, or the noun in the sense that perhaps the gift of light or the use of language and of, of cognition and of the creation of art and the, the maintaining of history and written language, that this is a uniquely human gift and that somehow that particular gift is in the image of God. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That is accurate. But I want to challenge you to think about image this way, imaging God doing it as a verb, simply uh, going into our culture and being image bearers. In other words, what they see in our behavior and our action is a reconciling type of action and behavior that turns people's attention back to God. How does God behave? God behaves honestly. God behaves patiently. God behaves gently. God behaves kindly. God's mind is full of things that are true. He is a God who is noble. He does that which is right. So as we behave, as we image in our culture, what we're doing is we're acting out the image of God by having a a, a dominion over the creation itself, which is demonstrating good leadership and good citizenship and good Christianity in our culture. So as an agent, as an officer, we are imaging God in all that we do. So a way of thinking of that might be to say that as God's creators and sub-creators, we want to protect His good creation as an act of an image bearer. In other words, uh, when Teddy Roosevelt was helping create the national park system and, and to save some of these beautiful um, uh, treasures, perhaps in Yosemite or in, or in the, the, the western parks, part of what was driving him was this, and you can read it in his biographies, by the way, part of it was that sense of this is the good creation, and this speaks to God, this speaks to what very good looks like, and we must protect this for future future generations. Not exploit it, but protect it. And by doing so, we are imaging in the, in, the, in the created order, protecting, having dominion, demonstrating stewardship. And so this is a part of imaging God, not just in our lives, but protecting the image of God that is in creation all around us. Because as Romans tells us, in the, in the nature around us, people see the excellence, they see the fullness of it, and their minds are turned so that they have no excuse to deny a creator. A second way uh, that we could act as reconcilers uh, is, is to be cultivating and exercising dominion over the planet around us. Now, this is what we refer to sometimes as the, the unfolding of a vision of the kingdom of heaven. So it's unfurling, unfolding, it's releasing the latent potential of the creation around us. Uh, that creative uh, drive, that creative want, that, that sub-creator role that we have. This is bringing flourishing to the culture around us us, flourishing to the, to the creation around us. It's taking the elements that God provided and then creating with those elements. Let me give you some examples of a couple of ways. How many of you are gardeners? Have you gardened much up here in Door County? What a great place to garden. I mean, if you want to grow a weed, this is the place to be, right? Um, that's what we learned. But, but there's other things that seem to grow well out at Souther Ranch, and one of them is acorn squash, right? Acorn squash. I've got to learn to say that right. Acorn squash, two syllables. How many of you have ever grown acorn squash? Okay. Okay. How about cantaloupes? Pretty cool. Watermelons? Squash in general? Have you grown anything in your garden? There we go. If you plant one seed, if you cultivate that soil, 
and you treat it right, and you amend it right, and you put all the good stuff in it, and you till it, and you take care of it, and you plant in it, what will that soil do for you when you put that seed in? Boom. Bounty. If you treat it right, it creates bounty. And, and there's a message in that, that one seed planted produces how many seeds in an acorn squash? Dozens of acorn squash, dozens and dozens and dozens, right? I know you're going to get me every time. I'm going to need to use a different fruit or vegetable. How about if it's a cucumber? How many seeds are in that cucumber? Dozens and dozens and dozens. How, how many seeds in a watermelon? Who really knows, right? So you can plant that one seed and there's bounty that comes. And this is the same way with the gospel. This is the same way with the behavior of the reconciling behavior of God's creation. When we do and we treat it well, it cultivates and it has a bounty of harvest. How about in music? As, as sub-creators, did humanity create metal? No, God created all the elements that form metal. Did mankind create wood? No, but here's what we did. Mankind realized that, that if you pluck a string, it makes a sound. And if you stretch it a little more or a little less or, or put it on an instrument or a thing, you can make sound out of it. The next thing you know, you've got a lyre or a guitar or a harp or a violin or a cello. But what happens if, if you take metal and you shape it into a drum and, and you, can, you can make sounds? What does cool steel drums and all the Caribbean things, man? Yay. Or what if, you, what, if you, what if you take metal and you shape it into a horn and, and you can blow that horn or a saxophone you can blow, or a clarinet? You see, what humanity has done... We've taken what God gave us, and as sub-creators now, we've created ways to express ourselves musically. And so you can go and you can listen to, to jazz over here and hear, oh man, all the phenomenal sounds and the mixed meters and everything of jazz, which is so cool. And then you can go over here to country music and you can, you know, run over your dog and get run over by a train and, and divorce and all that stuff that country music does. And then you can go, I'm just kidding. And then you can go over here and you can listen in church to worship. And we lift our voices in worship as we, as we hear about Christ and we, we praise him through the sound and through music because music moves us. We've created from what God provided as sub-creator. So you see, when we cultivate and exercise dominion, we have a reconciling effect of bringing all that we have back into order and to praise of our God. And then thirdly, I would say, um, we have uh, this ministry of, um, um, of occupation, I guess is, is the term I want to... Oh, there it is in front of me. Yeah, okay. This ministry of occupation. In other words, being in the culture but being different, engaging in the culture, engaging in the creation as uniquely transformed and radically different creations and people. So as we go, our light stands out amongst people. As we go, what we do, we live a light, just like Jesus said, by the way, remember, let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father in heaven. So imagine, if you will, that the church here in Door County became genuinely focused on living like Christians. And I mean, our brothers and sisters and friends at, at every church around the county really got focused on living like transformed Jesus followers and united, following the fact that we are enriched in Him in every way in all speech and knowledge, that the testimony about Christ is confirmed among us so that we lack in no spiritual gift. What if the church of Door County saw itself as one that was occupying our creation, occupying workplaces, occupying restaurants and businesses and farms and relationships, 
And in all of these things, we did it as the church of Jesus Christ with kingdom value in mind, using our gifts and abilities and talents to bring glory to Jesus Christ. What if our impact in society was that? See, this is where it would be genuinely transformative. What it would have is a gravitational effect that draws people to the message where they say, what is different about you and why is it that you're at peace? Why is it in the midst of this chaos you seem to be fulfilled and okay? How is it that a loved one can die and you can say, to God be the glory? How how can you be so sure you're going to see them again? How can you be so sure that doing the right thing is the right thing? How can you be so sure that your version of right is right? And we can say, oh, friend, because this is what Scripture teaches. And we love people even when they differ with us, but we love them through that difference. And even if we never come to agreement, we love people anyway. How can you do that? Because we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. You see, that's what Jesus does, and people are drawn to that kind of harmony. Because that's our internal desire as people, isn't it? I mean, how many of you love being in arguments with everybody else? How many of you love being lonely? Do you love being rejected? Do you love tension? Not the positive tension that brings change, but, but do you love constantly being in tension with people? No. We're drawn to harmony. That's the gravitational effect of the gospel. And when we live like the gospel, that's the impact we have in our culture. Now, if that be the case, and I argue that it is, whenever the church is divided, when division comes amongst God's family, these three impacts are diminished and diluted. They're diluted in the sense that they're not all that they could be. It's still the gospel. You're still redeemed by Jesus. Your eternity is still secure. You will still be at peace with God. You still will be uh, kings and queens and rulers and enjoyers of God's restored creation one day. But you're not having the effect on the world that you could have because we're so divided. So what did division look like in the church in Corinth? Well, let me read some of this and I want you to just think about it for a minute. It has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters. This is verse 11, by the way, in 1 Cor 1.11. It has been reported... By the way, I'm not being disrespectful when I say 1 Cor. It's just 1 Corinthians, okay? Just follow with me. I didn't mean to offend somebody with that last week. And and if you're here, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm not belittling the Word of God. It's it's just a turn of phrase. So I'm going to continue to use it because I like it. So 1 Cor 1.11, for it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you claims I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into Paul's name? You see, what was happening in the church in Corinth is really, really very simple. People were drawn to particular types of teachers and particular types of styles. Does that sound completely foreign to us? Let me, let me break it down a little bit more. Let's say, and I'll pick on a couple of you here because it's always fun to do that. Let, let's create a couple of different example churches in Sturgeon Bay. Let's say um, 
We have one church that's forming, okay? And they tend to like kind of the, the bluegrassy kind of music. Yeah, it's, it's whatever works in that church. Nobody's dressing up. It's just kind of casual. It starts, you know, whenever. You know, it's the Moe's church. And that's how the Moe's rolls. Like, what time does it start? Nine or ten. Whatever. Jim doesn't care. You know, how do we dress when we come to church? Psh, shorts, flip-flops. You know, it's whatever. Tank tops work. Right, Jim? Is this working for you? Jim's loving this church. So Jim's got this church, and, you know, they don't really clean up after church. It's kind of messy, but you know what? They really love each other there. They're so about people, and people come to that church. It's just, man, I'm so glad to see you. They're just so focused on each other, but, and their worship style is kind of, you know, sounds like here comes Jed, a country boy, but, but they love church, and that's how they worship, and it's great, and the preacher doesn't have notes. He just kind of opens it and goes with it, and they go through Scripture, and you know what? The people love that congregation, and they are so happy being Christians. Did the gospel get diluted? No. It's just that's the accent of the Mo Church. Got it? Okay, so over here on the other side, who am I ripping? We got the hookers. Okay, now the hookers, extremely uh, detail-oriented, extremely wealthy. Everybody's driving a Lexus. I mean, the house is like gilded in gold. It's gorgeous, and everybody dresses in, in their finest. I mean, there could be a tux pretty regularly. You know Bill. You know, likes the long tux pants and the shine shoes. He's, and everything is just perfect at, at the hooker church. And over there, they like that higher church music. They've even got a pipe organ in the house. I know, I've seen it. And so you go over there, and the pipe organ plays, and people are very dressed up, and they useth only the Kingeth Jameseth in their house. And over there, it is very, very fine at the Hooker Church, okay? Different accents. Is it the same gospel being taught? Yeah, absolutely. They're both reading from the same scripture. Even every Sunday, they agree. Same scripture they're going to use. The same gospel of Jesus Christ, but different accents. But what happens over time is that people kind of gravitate to one or the other. You know? And they start to kind of assign moral equivalence to our church. Well, you know, we are, we are the hooker congregation. <laughs> Love you. And then and over here, we've got, yeah, we the Mo congregation. You know, we having chitlins after church today. And so they're kind of different. And chitlins is real people food. We ain't all fancy and uppity like them. And they're like, oh, well, we love God enough to take care of the way we dress on Sundays. <laughs> and so, so what happens is division now forms. And what now what's taking place is that we've diluted the gospel because we've allowed preference, right, to trump message. Sound like anything else? Does it sound maybe in your mind the way it does to mine, like denominationalism in the United States, where we like to sing this way, here's how we do communion, and that's the only right way. Oh, and then over here, we do this kind of music, and we, we study this way, and we use this translation, and we dress this way on Sundays, and, and we're associated with this group of people historically. And so we subdivide and dilute and segregate and isolate the body of Jesus. And so the enrichment in every bit of speech and knowledge and all the gifts that are confirmed among you are now lacking from one part of the body to the other because we've segregated and diluted and separated ourselves. Here's what was happening in Corinth. Apollos was a spectacular scholar. Matter of fact, we know from Acts that, that Apollos came from Athens, the great 
uh, Alexandria, excuse me, the great library there in Alexandria, the scholarship that typified the Alexandrian Christian community. He was a phenomenal speaker, well-bred, well-educated, and articulate. And hey, a little bit exotic. And he shows up over here in Ephesus, and then he makes his way into Corinth. And so people were following Apollos because Apollos' church was you know, it was the eloquent, scholarly church, and it was a little exotic. You know, he's an international man of mystery. And so they would go to that church, and it's Apollos. And so they became associated with Apollos, and they said, yeah, we're with Apollos. And over here, another group was like, yeah, we're, we're with Paul. You know, we, we work for a living. We make tents for a living. You know, so we're the common people, and, and you know, we're from a Jewish background, but we're, there's a lot of Gentiles in our church too. So we're mixed over here in our church, so we're more diverse than, you know, you people. And so they became, we're with Paul. And others were, oh, we're with Cephas. Cephas is Peter, by the way. But if you said it, Cephas, it's your way of saying, we're about being Jewish and Christians. In other words, we keep all the Jewish laws too as well as the Christian laws. You know, we still keep the Saturday Sabbath, and uh, we still have the dietary rules, and we still have all the gender roles, and we still... And so they had separated themselves into the way the church was worshiping. Isn't that a crazy idea? I mean, have you ever heard of anything like that? It's why we talk about first Americans. Because you see, there's nothing new under the sun. We have the same divisions they did. We have the same challenges they did. And the ultimate impact of those separations is that we dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ and the impact of the gospel in our community so that you see divisions and denominations and separations and how we worship and where we worship and what we associate with as ways of separating and siloing ourselves has the net effect of weakening the impact of the gospel. And by the way, I've heard brothers and sisters, from Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. No, no. There must be unity among you because that's the call of the gospel. So as we prepare to close, let me ask you this. In your life, in your world, in your way of worshiping, is the Bible and the gospel preeminent above all else? Or have you allowed culture and preferences to create in your heart divisions among this church of Jesus Christ and other churches of Jesus Christ? Understanding, of course, that the gospel itself will create divisions because there must be a division between truth and deception. The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not the church of Jesus Christ. It is a cult. It is what first, first uh, sorry, what, what Paul referred to in Galatians as damned. In other words, condemned because it is a false gospel. Yes, there will be division. But you know what that division on our part should be characterized by? Passion and love and a desire to speak truth to people who've been deceived. Islam is not the truth. But the church of Jesus Christ must be consumed with love for and a desire to speak truth and harmony into the lives of people who have been deceived by Islam. But the people of Jesus need to be united, singular and one, with no divisions among you, because divisions among you dilute the gospel of Jesus. I remind you each week during the course of our study that what was 
is what is. Can you click on the was is slide for me? What was is what is. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. What was true for Corinth is true for us today. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new at all. And what was true in Corinth is that the Christian church had been divided by preferences and accents. And preferences and accents, when they cause divisions, eventually lead to isolation. And the further and further people get away from the gospel, the more it makes its way into the church that's not of Jesus. So what would the message for the Church of America be today? I would propose they are as follows. Slide 33, guys. Thank you. The church should always be characterized by people who are in complete agreement about the gospel. That's how the church of Jesus should be characterized. Which means whatever denominational division may exist, whatever style of worship or gathering may exist, whoever likes this type of music or that kind of building or that translation of the Bible or this type of dress or this type of speaking on the part of the pastor, that we should always be in agreement about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, every congregation should view itself as a part of the larger body of Christ and treat other congregations as family. We are not enemies or competitors to our brothers and sister churches in this city or in this county. We are family. And while we may speak with a little different accent, we should be instantly united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, redeeming the society is the never-ending role of the church. Your redemptive efforts will express our uniquely Jesus-centered, united value system so that the reconciling effect that we have on the culture, that is to say the unsaved, unregenerate, and deceived culture, will be this is what Christian living really looks like. It's exemplified by a redeemed people. 